If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 129. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, usual stuff. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and on YouTube. Just look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those things, just go out to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all of my social media buttons. You can also give me an email address on my webpage. And I'll give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders, audiobook read by yours truly. Also, if, there, if you're there, if you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, just go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the podcast going, help keep the lights on. Uh, anything you contribute is appreciated. Also, just want to remind you that I have my new McClanahan Academy. Going out to mclanahanacademy.com. There are two courses there now. One, Secession, An American Tale, and the other is How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. I've got discounts right now till the end of December. If you use the coupon code 15SECESSION, you can get the Secession course for 25 bucks, And Half Hamilton, you can get the Hamilton course for $36. What a steal. You want to get out, get out there and get those to make a great Christmas gift. Also, please remember to, re- to uh, leave a review for this podcast on iTunes. And if you have purchased my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I'd appreciate a review on Amazon.com. Okay, uh, today I want to get to a little bit of political philosophy. And I'm actually going to base this on a Facebook post that uh, Tom Fleming uh, had, had put up on his personal page. Uh, and, of course, this is also part of what he does at the Fleming Foundation. So you may not be familiar with Tom Fleming. Tom Fleming has a Ph.D. in classics from the University of North Carolina. He is a giant in the, quote-unquote, paleoconservative movement, whatever that is. But uh, he is someone who is well-respected and well-known. He was the editor from, for Chronicles, a magazine of American culture, for about 30 years and uh, he since retired from that, and now he's working with his Fleming Foundation, so you can go out and look at that Fleming Foundation. Um, and he is um, always interested in ideas, and I think that's the fun part about reading what Tom Fleming has to say, uh, because he is uh, penetrating in his analysis. Uh, he doesn't hold anything back. Um, he doesn't have any sacred cows And so when you go out and you read what Tom Fleming has to say about things, you're going to get a very straight shooter. He's also Socratic in that his his thoughts are oftentimes simply an exercise in trying to figure something out. And this this particular um, post I'm going to read, there's actually, it's it's quite long, 
but I'm going to read it because I want to play off of a couple of things here and then talk about his, his uh, question, essentially. And what we're talking about today is tradition. I've mentioned tradition a lot on this particular podcast. And um, when you look at tradition in terms of politics and philosophy and society and culture and how important that is. Um, and so I want to read this because he's asking some very important questions. Questions that he, frankly, doesn't necessarily know the answer to. Uh, because, again, this is a Socratic exercise. And he actually says that in this particular piece. So he's, he's trying to define traditionalism or this, this ism, ISM. He's trying to define conservatism. Do these things really even exist and do they matter? And I think that's an important question. You know, when we get to these isms, you know, the 19th century was the age of isms. You had isms for everything. And of course, we live, that has carried forward into the 20th and 21st century. If you believe in something, then you're an ideologue. Simply put, everyone's an ideologue. But is that true? Is everyone an ideologue? Um, are, are simple principles ideology? Or are these principles based on something different? And I think that's a very good question to have. Um, and so he's getting into that. So let's start with this. He says, quote, Conservatism is a very elastic term, so big that it was stretched by rent-seeking leaders of conservative organizations in the 1990s into a big tent. There are liberal conservatives who care only about the illusion of free markets and freedom of choice, neoconservatives who are democratic uh, uh, Jacobins and softcore Marxists, and even traditionalist conservatives who do not entirely reject the classical tradition, the works of Shakespeare and Milton, and the wisdom of the past. If the word conservative were to mean anything these days, it really doesn't, it would have to include a healthy respect for tradition. Otherwise, the accusation that conservatives are only pre preserving yesterday's revolution would not be merely mostly true, but entirely true. To one extent or another, most of my friends and colleagues on the Anglo-American right were considered, either by themselves or by others, as traditionalists. Some of the most prominent names that come to mind are Clyde Wilson, Russell Kirk, and Emmy Bradford. <clears throat> I think it would be more accurate to exclude those who defend one particular tradition, Southern American classical, and to limit the term to those who defined or advocated tradition per se. In this sense, Dr. Kirk and Alastair McIntyre, even more so, was a traditionalist, while Clyde Wilson is not. I am not saying that the defenders of the Southern tradition do not generally respect tradition, only that it is not among their preeminent interests. Mal Bradford respected the Yankees and their traditions and spoke highly of Venice and the Holy Roman Empire, but these were parallel to and supportive of his loyalty to the Southern and British traditions to which he devoted his life. Nor am I suggesting that, for in the case of my narrowly defined traditionalists, tradition trumps all other values. Nonetheless, the impression is sometimes given that tradition is something like the conservative antidote to the myth of progress, a sort of metaphysical force that needs to be respected and appropriated. A few more paragraphs, but I should warn the unwary that this is an ongoing discussion. The writer does not describe himself as conservative or have any truck with the imaginary conservative movement. He is grappling with the meaning of terms such as liberal, radical, conservative, traditionalist. Every age has its virtues and vices, and every age stands in serious need of the correction that can only be gained from cultivating the virtues it lacks and opposing the vices to which it is inured. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that moderns pride themselves on their humanity and kindness and condemn medieval men for their lack of compassion. 
but if a man of the 12th century could be brought back to the 20th, he would be struck immediately by the lack of courage. Satire, a writer I often cite, observes shrewdly that modern man is obsessed with freedom because it is what he most lacks. For similar reasons, the Greeks were always talking about moderation and self-restraint. The Romans, at the height of the social and political revolution that culminated in the dictatorship of Julius Caesar, were constantly appealing to the mos memorium, the time-honored practices of their ancestors. Unfortunately for us, we are so emerged, I'm sorry, estranged from ourselves and our traditions that we only rarely pay even lip service to tradition. Have you ever noticed how often discussions of tradition begin with an allusion to Fiddler on the Roof? I wonder if this nervous tick is an indication that tradition is not quite respected unless it is tied to a minority culture. Something similar has happened with the words like community, which so often refer to a black neighborhood, or gentleman, which is often applied to either black males or, like the word mature, to pornography. In common parlance, tradition means the way things used to be before the revolution, by which I mean the revolutionary tradition that began when the Renaissance. While leftists eagerly deride the Trump administration for violating protocols and breaking with precedent, all the protocols and precedents they defend are recently invented springs and devices of their revolution against human nature and political sanity. If they were to speak a word in favor of tradition, they would be forced to acknowledge some possible merit in, say, traditional marriage and traditional sex roles. Tradition from Latin traditio, the, the verb tadire, to hand down or across, signifies both the handing down of customs and accomplishments and that which has been handed down. Those who ignore or dis despise the customs and works of their ancestors and predecessors are temporal chauvinists, so proud of their own age that they cannot see any good in other ages. In this, they are like national chauvinists or racial extremists, who can find no good in anyone who does not look and act like themselves. The bigotry of time, however, is more debilitating than the bigotry of race and nation, since it prevents its victims from learning from the experience of earlier generations and from understanding who they are, because to know who we are, we must know who we have been. The accumulated wisdom of earlier generations constitutes the democracy of the dead that Chesterton praised, and it is the best antidote to the tyranny of current public opinion. This wisdom is all the more necessary when public opinion and public taste are not formed as they once were, as they were once, excuse me, either by an emerging consensus of the best and brightest, or by bubbling up from the common people, but are imposed by well-seeking humanoids that would jettison the last vestiges of humanity if it meant another million dollars or another dozen bimbos. I'm not only referring to Harvey Weinstein. Tradition also serves as a non-rational corrective to revolutionary modernity that most often claims to speak in the name of, of reason, though it is in fact an irrationality applied rationally that dissolves all human community. If one fights irrational, irrational rationality, only with the tools of rationalism, the conflict becomes the exchange of, of pronouncements. Property is theft. No, it isn't. Property is the only sound basis of society. The family oppresses women. No, it doesn't. Tradition is something more like religion, a force beyond individual experience and exception. And if one accepts the reality that everyone in our family has always washed his hands before eating, it saves a great deal of breath when dealing with uppity adolescence. This is a large topic. We extend its discussion by praising in detail each and every benefit that accrues from respecting tradition. However, there is also a darker side to tradition, one which we shall discuss in the next installment. So it stops here. In fact, um, the Fleming Foundation is a paid site, and so the rest of that you would have to pay to get. 
But there are several things I want to discuss here because I think he brings up some really important points about tradition. Number one, um, one question I have with this is, is there an American tradition? Can you be an American traditionalist? Or is tradition something older than that? Do you have to go beyond America? And so in that particular way, I go back to Richard Weaver, who uh, is often cited as a traditionalist. And Weaver, in his uh, collection of essays in defense of tradition, which is published by Liberty Fund, dealt with this issue a little bit. He dealt with the issue of tradition. And so we had, I want to read a couple of paragraphs from that, and then I'll build on these um, when, I, when I move forward in my discussion. So he says, quote, This type of conservative gets his conservatism by inheritance, by imitation, by decent respect for those forces and institutions that are in being. Like Burke, he believes that it is best to draw a veil over the origin of government and over their philosophical foundations, too. He seems to find most that he needs an instinct in social discipline, in the modeling, uh, I'm sorry, in the molding power of tradition. On the other hand are those conservatives who tend to be much more speculative about matters. They like to examine the roots of things. They like to formulate consistent theories. They are respectful of precedent, or they would not be conservatives. But they philosophize more than others about where precedent is leading. Some of them talk, some of them think that conservatism is capable of being just as intellectually rigorous as radicalism in, other, in, in another direction. Their position might be summed up by saying that while they think practice is good, they believe that in the final analysis there is no such thing as practice without theory. So what he is doing there is actually saying the same thing that uh, Fleming was saying in his first paragraph, where you have traditionalists and then you have traditionalist conservatives. The second group were traditionalist conservatives. Who still who believe in tradition, but they also have theories that have to be put together. And then uh, Weaver says this quote: "It took the study of John Calhoun to wake me up to a realization that a constitution is and should be primarily a negative document, a constitution, and we may think primarily of the Constitution of the United States in this connection, is more to be revered for what it prohibits than for what it authorizes." A constitution is a series of thou shalt nots to the government, specifying the ways in which the liberties of individuals and of groups are not to be invaded. A constitution is a protection against that kind of arbitrary interference to which government left, it, left to itself is prone. It is right, therefore, to refer to our constitution as a charter of liberties through its negative provisions. And it is no accident that in our day the friends of liberty have been pleaders for constitutional government. I think conservatives and libertarians stand together in being this kind of constitutionalist. Both want a settled code of freedom for the individual. So that's an interesting position when you get into this idea of an American conservative, or an American traditionalist, I should say. Do, do one of those things exist? And I think that is actually getting more to the point of an American traditionalist, because that constitution is based on older traditions. And, of course, our model of a written constitution is something that is uniquely American outside of Rome. You know, you, and um, I talked about this in, uh, in my course on secession. And there is a super secret thing going on where I'll get into that in more detail that you'll find out more probably in 2018. But um, let's start with some of the other issues here that are discussed in this wonderful little uh, post. It was three posts that he put up. 
about this. And so, first of all, conservative really does mean nothing nowadays. Um, and I think he's entirely right about that. You know, conservative, what is a conservative? Well, you have so many different factions of conservatives. And, and you're seeing this now. Uh, you're seeing it play out in modern American politics with Donald Trump. You have the never-Trumpers who are against Donald Trump because Donald Trump represented a type of conservatism, quote-unquote, that they found appalling. It was a populist kind of conservatism. Um, whatever that means, but that's what people said it was. So you have these ists and isms. Uh, and then you have the neoconservatives who their foreign policy is awful. Um, and of course, they're really just trying to conserve, as, as Dr. Fleming says, the last revolution. I remember when I was in an undergraduate, I was speaking with a Marxist uh, historian, and I was in a class entitled Utopian Literature. And um, I, I made the point, that in reality, she was a conservative. And she recoiled. <gasps> How can you say I'm a conservative? Because I said, what you're trying to do here is defend every vestige of the New Deal, of the great society. You are trying to conserve what you brought, the last revolution. So you're really not a progressive or a reformer, because in, in your mind, just maintaining that would be good enough from attacks from the outside. Now, it doesn't mean she didn't want to go further, because she did. But at the end of the day, if she could just preserve what they, had, what they had established through the 20th century and through the idea of progress in the 20th century, she would be fine with that. So in many ways, what we have in Washington, D.C. are two types of conservatives. One who's trying to preserve uh, a, the, the latest revolution, and the other, the neoconservatives, who are also trying to preserve the older revolution. Uh, really, what they're trying to preserve is the, is the progressive march of the 20th century. Because if you were to ask the leaders in Congress, would you, for example, abolish Social Security? If Social Security is unconstitutional, which the argument was made when Social Security was presented that it was unconstitutional, would you abolish it? If you were a real conservative, would you say Social Security is unconstitutional, abolish Social Security? And I mean conservative in that you're trying to undo the revolution. I bet 99.9% .9 of the people there would say, no, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, get rid of Social Security. Why? Because they're political pragmatists. And simply, they are progressives in another shade. Uh, if you were to ask them, uh, would you abolish Obamacare? On the campaign trail, they would say, of course I would abolish Obamacare. But once we see they're in Congress, they don't want to abolish Obamacare because, again, they are simply conserving the last revolution because, well, there's stuff to like in Obamacare. Uh, you can get health insurance if you have pre-existing conditions uh, and things of this nature. You, you can keep your kids on your health insurance until they're 26. Uh, so there are things to like. We can't get rid of that because people would vote us out of office. So the question is, are they really that conservative? Uh, if they were that conservative, they would go after all kinds of vestiges of, of the progressive revolution of the 20th century that would be politically unpopular. And that is the point. We get tied into this mess of politics, and part of the problem with that is something that Weaver brings up in that paragraph on the Constitution. Because an American traditionalist would respect the Constitution as ratified. And if it violated the Constitution as ratified, then you would oppose it um, in terms of a political position, 
uh, when it comes down to constitutionalism and the role of government. Now, that does not carry over into society. And as Dr. Fleming mentions at the end of the piece, there are some negatives of tradition. Uh, traditionalists, uh, someone who is a traditionalist, wouldn't embrace, for example, cannibalism. Um, they wouldn't do those kind of things. That would not be something that uh, would be would be something they would support. And looking at a society, for example, you could say that uh, the barbaric practice of uh, the uh, medieval practice of uh, putting someone's hand in a boiling pot of water to find a rock and then seeing if their hand uh, heals properly, the ordeals, what this was called, was called. That's somehow traditional. We should go back to these barbaric forms of punishment. Uh, you're, you're accused of something, and to prove your innocence, you have to be thrown into a river. And if you float, uh, you're guilty or not. Uh, if, you, if you float, you're guilty. If you sink, you're not. Uh, so these were barbaric practices. Uh, we wouldn't go back and say, you know, uh, crucifixion uh, should be brought back because uh, our ancestors of the past did these things. We're, we're, you don't do that. Uh, I think that we've found that perhaps those practices were not something that we should hold on to. But again, that gets into the idea of Chesterton's fence. Uh, when you look at something, you say, I'm going to reform it. So you, you look at punishments and you say, okay, here's the fence. Um, the fence is these barbaric forms of punishment. Are these things worthy of preservation or not? And if you have a serious conversation about these things, you can say, well, we're going to take that fence up and we're going to reform those type of punishments. So if you look at the enlightened monarchs, for example, of the 18th century, people like Joseph II in Austria with his more humane uh, criminal code and the idea that uh, criminals... Uh, should have some type of rights, and that we should try to get rid of some of these barbaric forms of punishment. You know, in England, it was drawing and quartering someone. Perhaps that would be a good thing for humanity. Um, and of course, some of that was formed by Christian sensibilities. And so, when you look at Christianity as the basis of tradition, you find that that is an important component. Uh, but Christianity, in many ways, was a Reformation uh, movement as well, because uh, the people that were being uh, in, uh, being uh, converted to Christianity were pagans with some pretty barbaric practices. And so Christianity was a reforming movement, but a beneficial reforming movement as it would be considered in the West. So uh, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you, you, this, and going back to this term conservative, it's not even a, a, wor a worthwhile term anymore unless you're using it, as I said, as a placeholder. Uh, some way to, to talk to the masses about a position. You have conservatives and liberals. Uh, it's, it's a weak definition, or you have conservatives and progressives, as they prefer to be called today. It's a weak position, uh, one that's fraught with all kinds of pitfalls. But if you are someone who's just trying to appeal for votes or for uh, over support among the masses, it's not a bad thing to say. You, you position yourself uh, one way or another. Uh, and he says that if the word conservative were to mean anything, and these days it really doesn't, it would have to include a healthy respect for tradition. So uh, I think that's the part that's being lost in the conservative. They don't really support tradition anymore. Now, you do find some who will say, I support traditional this or traditional that, uh, I'll, particularly when it comes to social issues. And this is the culture war that we're engaging in. The problem with this is that these, these issues, in so many ways, are more important for community. And as uh, Dr. Fleming brings up, that word community means nothing now either, because we don't really have communities anymore. Community is a non-existent term. 
Um, and this is where think locally, act locally, and why I talk about this all the time. That's actually the basis of that. You have to have a community. People are social animals. Even in, uh, you know, this is what the libertarians uh, like Jeff Deist and others are talking about now at Mises, uh, who are saying, look, uh, yeah, I mean, the individual is important. Individual liberty is important. But if you got rid of government, eventually you would, you would form into communities where you would have rules in those communities. It would exist uh, because community people as social animals are going to form so associations with like-minded people. And then there would be rules within that society you would can come up with some type of governing structure. It may not be coercive, but it would be based on, if nothing else, custom and precedent, which is tradition. This is where Jeff Dice got in so much trouble when he mentioned the terms blood and soil, uh, where you have family uh, matters, important clan and community. Uh, that's what he's talking about there. You would come up with some type of traditions. The, the idea of civil liberties itself is a tradition. Uh, thankfully, we are uh, in the United States, uh, in, in North America, we have a healthy respect for, for British or English civil liberties, for the traditions of the English. Because if we didn't, we could be in a whole different situation. So that is traditional. Now, there are people that don't like these things. There are people that want to silence speech, for example, or political activity, or uh, you know, right of property. I mean, these are things that are fundamental to tradition. Uh, one of the things when he talks about a gentleman, uh, that term gentleman actually had meaning. It doesn't anymore. Um, and this is, again, community and gentleman. Those terms are, I mean, he brings those up because and mature because they are loaded now in different ways, but they are three essential terms. Uh, you walk around and you see, we don't, we don't really have gentlemen anymore. If we did, we wouldn't have the Harvey Weinstein affair. We wouldn't have all these accusations about people doing things they shouldn't be doing. You see, gentlemen in tradition, as I mentioned on a previous podcast in Hollywood or Holly Weird, gentlemen in tradition, those terms were there and those traditions were there to protect men and women from each other. But you had to be a gentleman to believe in those things and to support them. And that was important. Um, and so, uh, you know, th this idea of traditional roles or traditional uh, male-female activities, those were the fences that were established to prevent abuse from one sex against each other. Every sex has its vices. Every sex has its inherent uh, biological moves in terms of dealing with the other sex. But when you put up Fences. I mean, a man inherently who's barbaric is going to be a caveman. And what has been found, if we have our modern dating situation, there have been studies on this, essentially men and women are reverting back to caveman barbaric actions and, and treating each other the way a caveman would treat a, a woman or a cavewoman would treat a man. We've gone back to that through the quote-unquote hookup culture. Essentially, this is what's happening in modern society because we don't have the barriers anymore. And of course, that's going to create situations. And then, But the problem is you still have people, and these are where the accusations come in with people like Weinstein and now you know, everyone else under the sun. The problem is that some people want the barriers to exist, but they don't want the barriers to exist. This is the issue. They don't want the barriers to exist, uh, but yet they want men to act like gentlemen. 
Uh, they don't want these 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 old traditional barriers to be there when it comes to roles in society, but and they but they want men to still adhere to the barriers. This is where you get into the crazy situation, and it's 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 confusing. Uh, so the barriers are there to protect people. Mature, the idea of mature. We don't have mature men anymore. We have boys running around. Um, you know, so the the idea of dressing. I, I remember. Um, just, just a simple concept of wearing a hat. Uh, and, you know, if you go to a ball game, you wear a ball hat. Um, if you're playing baseball, you wear a baseball hat. Otherwise, uh, what's the point? And I know that, I know this might offend people because I'm saying something that, uh, you know, is, is a, a baseball hat has become essentially part of a man's attire today. But that was a boy's attire. Um, in the in the awful uh, and and I you know the, the show Boardwalk Empire, which had it was again it's this Holly weird thing. It's, it's the, the part of the show was interesting, and there was one particular scene where the character who played Al Capone was wearing a cap, and one of the other gangsters approached him and said, "Why are you wearing a boy's hat? If you want to be re- respected as a man, you have to dress like a man." We don't say these things anymore. We don't actually say to someone, look, you're dressing like a boy. If you want to be respected like a man, be a man. If you want to be a man, act like a man. In other words, be mature. Don't be immature. But now again, these terms are associated with other things. One of the other things he said in here that I think is interesting, and I think this is why uh, Americans, in some ways, are hungry for the founding generation, at least some Americans. This is where you get into American traditionalism, because we don't have these things anymore. You know, he talked about Rome. When you look at Roman historians in the age of Augustus, one of the things they were doing was writing about uh, the traditional Roman citizen. What made him great? What made that Roman citizen of the old republic, what made that guy, that, that, that person, worthy of emulation? And you had other people like Tacitus, who are out there writing about the Germans and saying, these Germans are really noble. The modern Romans, I mean, look at Pompeii. It's awful. Uh, it's just an immoral cesspool. All of our Roman citizens have gotten to this point. What happened to that old Roman citizen? Now, this is in some ways a romantic infatuation with the past, and I think sometimes we can get into that a little bit as traditionalists. Well, I mean, it wasn't necessarily that way. But certainly you can find in, say, George Washington, someone who was much more worthy of emulation than, say, uh, you know, take your pick of your modern politician. Because they had a certain semblance of tradition to them, of traditional roles, of cavalier society. They were gentlemen. So we can find that, and of course that's based on an older tradition that goes back before that. So you can't necessarily just stop in America, and there, we, we get into this discussion, is America uh, traditionally liberal in its design? Not, there isn't really a conservative American tradition. We could have that discussion. But certainly I think this is why Americans are so infatuated with the founding generation, because they represent something that we no longer have. Uh, and this is why, you know, when he brings up the Greeks and the Romans and why they did certain things, because they were they were infatuated with things that they didn't have any longer. They discussed, uh, you know, restraint in Greece because they had so much freedom. We discuss freedom now because we have none. <laughs> so we're, wow, it'd be great to have these things. You know, we don't really have private property anymore because if I have a puddle form in my yard, the government's going to come in and tell me that's a wetland. 
and therefore I can't do anything with it. Uh, I can't sell my property to who I want to. If I own a business, I can't prohibit people from coming in the business and, uh, for the most part. I can't do that. I can't, I can't do any of these things. So you really don't have private property. It doesn't exist in America. You have property that is regulated by the government and what you can do with it and what you can't do with it. If I put my house on the market, uh, unless I go completely private, um, I can't sell it. If I put a sign on the road, I can't say I'm only going to sell it to this person. I can't do that uh, because uh, that would be breaking the law. So we don't really have private property anymore. It's my property. I should be able to sell it to who I want to or not sell it to who I want to. Um, and, and this is just the, the concept of private property. But it's interesting that you know we he, he brings up these things, and I think so. This this particular piece is so good in that way, and this is why I would recommend that you subscribe to the Fleming Foundation if you if you are interested in these kind of discussions, uh, because um, they are they are penetrating in their analysis of what it means to be a conservative or a traditionalist or a libertarian. I mean, uh, Dr. Fleming is not a libertarian at all. Um, and if you look at Richard Weaver, that part of that essay when I talked about you know the, the symbiosis between libertarians and quote-unquote conservatives or traditionalists can be found in the Constitution. And of course, so Dr. Fleming has made, made it clear the Constitution is dead, and I would agree with him that somehow the Republic can be preserved by just bringing back the Constitution. That's not going to happen unless we have a healthy respect for federalism. And in that particular way, you have to get back to tradition and this think locally, act locally mantra, where somehow uh, the uh, everything comes from the bottom up. The wellspring is the bottom up. Again, tradition and traditional roles and traditional society and traditional community have to become important in that discussion. We can't reform from the top down. We can have a healthy respect for federalism. We can go back to the original constitution, which again would negate most federal law uh, because the states would then be in charge of these things and the states would be more responsive to tradition than the general government would. Uh, and so that way that would be a, a, a breath of fresh air. Uh, and so Dr. Fleming is perfectly uh, in line in, in favor of that. Um, but again, he's more concerned about the social and this is why uh, Chronicles magazine, American, uh, a magazine of American culture, which he, he led for so long. I mean, this is what they get into more than anything else. It's not really, they talk about politics, but it's always based in this idea of tradition and preservation of culture, most importantly. And uh, culture for some is a boring topic. They start, you know, start eyes, you know, glass over and they, they start looking. And, and, and for someone who has always been interested in politics and law and things of that nature, I never really liked cultural history. But as I've gotten older, I've understood that cultural history is the basis of everything. Uh, if you, you have to have that understanding to get to politics. There's a political culture that's based on an actual culture. And if you don't have an actual culture, your politics are going to be corrupt. And so that's important. Um, so for those of you who weren't familiar with Dr. Fleming, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, and again, uh, I'm, I read that piece because I thought there was so much meat in that and uh, what he's saying there. And, uh, you know, this Socratic exercise of trying to figure something out, not knowing the answer necessarily, and finding the pitfalls in it all. That is such a refreshing thing, because so many people don't do that. Uh, they, they don't uh, have this real intellectual pursuit anymore of just trying to find answers, and knowing that you may never find the answer. <laughs> it may not be there. I, I, I don't necessarily have an answer to these things. Is there an American traditionalist? I think you could say yes in some ways, and I think you could say no. 
Uh, Can we have an ism of tradition? I I think you can say yes in some ways, and I think you can say no. Uh, So I I recoil at the whole idea of ideology to begin with, of an ism or an ist. Uh, I think it's more important to have a culture and a principle than anything else. Uh, And those principles are based on tradition and culture. And so they work hand in hand in hand. They're hand in glove, so to speak. So um, I, I I like these ideas. I like kicking these things around. And I hope you enjoyed this particular discussion. And, and again, uh, for a podcast, it's a, it's a different kind of topic, but one that I think is important moving forward. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClain Show.